Hi, Cherise here with a special announcement. You can now enjoy select episodes of Detailed in video form. That's right. Detailed is now available on RCAT's YouTube channel. Now, you may be thinking, I already listened to the podcast. No need to watch it on YouTube. Well, trust me, if you don't want to miss out, even if you're an avid listener of the podcast, the video format is a completely different experience. Not only is it like hanging out with us, but you also get to hear parts of the conversation that were left on the cutting room floor. You can also see the photos, drawings, and video as we discuss the incredible projects that are featured. Come join us on YouTube. Follow the link in our show notes, and let's get into the details. This is an original podcast by RCAT. Try the number one most used website for finding building product information and save time and money. No registration is required with RCAT, so try it today and get ahead on your next project. Visit RCAT.com. That's A-R-C-A-T dot com. Oliver Alter also said, one thing that architecture takes more than any other field is a lot of time. If you can have an idea that drives the design, you could do that. But then you've got to work out all the pragmatics, the function, the, the structure, the acoustic, all these things. And then you get great architecture, but you can't just, you know, it doesn't happen quickly. This is Detailed, an original podcast by RCAT. I am your host, Sharice Lakeside, Senior Specification Writer at RDH Building Science and fondly known as the CSI Kraken. We will speak with professionals who share their insights into the most complex, interesting, and odd building conditions and the ingenuity it took to make it work. Join me as I pull back the curtain on the building industry and uncover the lessons learned. You'll gain valuable knowledge to help you better navigate your next project. Welcome to Detailed. The voice you heard in our intro is my guest, Stephen Hall, principal at Stephen Hall Architects, an internationally recognized architecture and urban design office with locations in the Hudson Valley, New York, and Beijing. Stephen is a graduate of the University of Washington, and he pursued architecture studies in Rome. In 1976, he joined the Architectural Association in London, and that following year established Stephen Hall Architects in New York City. Stephen was named by Time Magazine as America's Best Architect for creating buildings that satisfy the spirit as well as the eye. He has realized cultural, civic, academic, and residential projects in the United States and internationally. He specializes in seamlessly integrating projects into contexts with cultural and historic importance. Stephen has been recognized with architecture's most prestigious awards and prizes, notably the Premium Imperial Award for Architecture, the AIA Gold Medal, and the Reba Jenks Award. Stephen is a tenured professor at Columbia University's Graduate School of Architecture and Planning, and he has lectured and exhibited widely as well as published numerous texts. The project we are going to chat about today is The Reach at the John F. Kennedy Center for the Performing Arts in Washington, D.C. But before we get started, don't forget to take a look at the project photos and drawings as you listen along. 
you can click the link in our show notes or visit www.rcat.com slash podcast. As a living memorial for President John F. Kennedy, the Kennedy Center for the Performing Arts takes an active position among the great presidential monuments in Washington, D.C. Through public events and stimulating art, the Kennedy Center offers a place where the community can engage and interact with artists across the full spectrum of the creative process. The Reach is the first major expansion of the Kennedy Center. The 72,000 square foot edition provides much needed rehearsal, education, and flexible indoor and outdoor spaces, allowing the Kennedy Center to continue to be a leader in artistic, cultural, and enrichment opportunities. You know, it's a very important project because the 1972 Edward Durrell Stone Building, you really needed these functional spaces. And that building hadn't been, you know, really added to since 1972. And it's different from the Lincoln Memorial, the Jefferson Memorial. Those are presidential memorials. They're static buildings. This is an active memorial. It has events 360 days a year. So it's a presidential memorial, but it's a different kind. To select an architect for the expansion, the Kennedy Center held a competition. There were, I don't know how many, 10, and then they narrowed it down to six, and then they narrowed it down in the end to three. And it it was done in two stages. One of the things that happened when I presented the project the first time, how we got into the second round, is I told a story about when I was a child I remember Kennedy's inauguration day. I was in, I don't know, fourth grade or something. And they wheeled in a black and white television to our classroom. And when Robert Frost, the great poet, got up to the podium, somehow there was smoke coming out of the podium. It was really a cold day. And there was a pocket warmer in the podium that somehow was smoking. And he had to back away from the podium. And it was a big disturbance. You know, here's the inauguration. Everybody's watching it on television. When he went back up to the podium, he couldn't see the poem that he was going to read. And he recited another poem from memory. A, a preface to the poem I can say to you without seeing it. The poem goes like this. The land was ours before we were the land. Anyway, I told that to the committee. I said, before I present our scheme, I have to tell a story why this project means so much to me. I, Kennedy, for me, was one of the greatest presidents, but this also this connection of my childhood and Robert Frost. And does anybody at this table, and now we're like 12, does anybody remember that event? And David Rubenstein said, I remember it. And he was, he was the chair of the Kennedy Center. And so he was the chair of the jury. And, you know, we had proposed this underground with the pavilions coming up through the landscape. So 90% of the area is underneath a green landscape. And they said, you can't do that because there's a system of wastewater pipes for the city of Washington, D.C. there. You can't go down there. And I said, please, we can do it. We can work around it. Give us another round and let us work with the engineers, the city engineers, the wastewater engineers, and all these people, 
you know, the other competitors had done objects against the big Edward Durrell stone box. And we had something that merged landscape and architecture. And they did. The, the committee was very smart. And they gave us another $50,000 and four, four months to do another round. And then we won. Unanimous vote. We won. Located southeast of the National Mall, the $250 million addition spans four acres of waterfront landscape next to the main Edward Durrell Stone design building that's held all of the Kennedy Center's programming for decades. Stevens' design is anchored by three signature pavilions, the Welcome Pavilion, the Skylight Pavilion, and the River Pavilion. The original competition had the river pavilion floating in the Potomac River. So there are three pavilions, but the river pavilion was floating in the river. And the Army Corps of Engineers objected to that. And the rowing club, the Potomac Rowing Club, objected to that. And I was trying to realize this as the competition, but at a certain point I realized it ain't going to happen. I was trying to make these three pavilions relate to each other, But in the river, I had to make it white aluminum. I picked up the river pavilion. I put it on the ground. Now, it's still the river pavilion. You still look out to the river and you have the cafe and opens. Now, it can be white concrete. Suddenly, I realized this is a better solution. I can service the river pavilion from below. I can take the trucks that come in with the refreshments or take out the waste uh, bags or whatever. can all be underneath, unseen. When I had it floating out on the river, it was a nightmare. One of the reasons I wanted to float the river pavilion on the river is to get over and be able to have a pedestrian link across that highway to the riverfront. So when we lost the river pavilion, I asked Deborah Rudder, please, let's get that bridge. You know, we, we want, and she was great. And together we realized the bridge. Now we have the bridge connection to the riverfront for the public, which is used by bicyclists and everyone, right? It's very important, by the way. That highway, you just can't cross it. So you've got that pedestrian link to the riverfront, and the river pavilion is in concrete, so it relates to the other two pavilions, and you can service it from below. So you can see that one of the things as an architect, you have an idea that's driving the design. You can't hang on to it too hard. You've got to be flexible and able to change things. You know, David Rubenstein, was a great, great client that way, you know. Deborah said, okay, Stephen, David has to approve this. Now we've got it on land. He's going to come to your office. I said, okay, 9.30 on a Thursday morning. He showed up exactly 9.30. I showed him the model and the drawings of how we're moving the river pavilion onto the ground. He said, great, do it. Anything else? I said, yeah. You know, in order to get the details that I love, you know, the door handles and the light fixtures and all that kind of intense details, we need a little more money for the project. He said, how much? And I just, off the top of my head, I said, 12 million. He said, okay, done. And he left. He came into my office at 9.30 and he left at, you know, 9.45 or 10 minutes to 10. And the Reverend Pavilion was approved and we had the details to be able to do the crinkled concrete and the special cherry wood and all the stuff that we needed to do. We had the details. And now everybody loves the project and it won several awards. But the moral of that story is behind every great project, 
It isn't the architect that's important. It's the client. There's got to be a great client. The pavilions stretch across a sweeping green lawn overlooking the Potomac River, a significant upgrade from the existing parking lot that used to be there. That was just an asphalt bus parking lot. And we showed them how we could put the buses underneath. We could work around all these system of wastewater tunnel pipes and things and make this really be a building that's just as much about landscape as it is about architecture. First of all, we bring natural light to all spaces. The Edward Durrell Stone Building is, uh, you know, some spaces don't have any natural light. So we want to bring natural light and ventilation to all the spaces. So we shift the landscape. It has cracks in it. And then the light comes down through the three pavilions. So the three pavilions also shape views and shape views to the Lincoln Memorial, to the Washington Memorial. And again, you have to go there. You have to walk through it. So you're in this landscape, which is the largest green roof, by the way, in uh, Washington, D.C. It's 70,000 square feet of landscape over the programs that are underneath that all get natural light underneath because it took a lot of design work, you know, 30 different models to, to get this, to make everything function properly, to get, you know, the wastewater treatment tunnels not interfering with it and to get the natural light. And then also to make that a landscape. And the pavilions, they shape views. So when you walk between them, it's like walking between two small buildings that form a distant view. And therefore, it becomes something really exciting to experience. One of the buildings has a simulcast projecting from the original Kennedy Center. We made a little hole and we have a 50,000 lumen projector so that when you have an opera, you know, it's a big opera house there, but it costs too much for people, $250 a seat or whatever it is. We do a simulcast. People can sit for free in the lawn and see what's going on in the opera house. So I'm sure that John Fitzgerald Kennedy would be very proud of that dimension of this project. That's a very democratic gesture to the public. And I'm sure that he would, would be proud. The expansion connects the Edward Durrell Stone Building below ground, forming an expansive facility that provides classrooms, studios, and a variety of multi-use public spaces. Oh, it has this huge program of rehearsal spaces, dance rehearsal spaces. One of the main rehearsal spaces is exactly the same size as the stage of the opera house. That's quite a big volume. All of these are underground, on, under the pavilions, right? And there's an event pavilion. I call it the Glissando. Michael Kaiser was the director at the time that we won the competition. And I explained my project. I said, these pavilions tell you that there's something underground because there's this curved shape that seems to come from the underground. And I said, it's like when you take a violin and you, you pull the bow over every string, it's a glissando, and I call this the glissando pavilion. And, you know, I, I named it, and he liked it, and then he retired, and a new director, Deborah Rudder, came in, and she started by coming into my room, my office here, like a bull in a china closet. <laughs> but in the end, we became really great friends, and she was really important in the realization of the whole project. 
But in the beginning, it was like, whoa. <laughs> and one of the first things she did was, she, I don't like the word glissando. I'm going to call that the skylight pavilion. Okay, that's all right. <laughs> Inside the building, an innovative crinkled concrete texture is expressed on the walls of rehearsal and performance spaces, integrating acoustical qualities within the concrete walls. The structural walls that hold up that 70,000 square foot landscape, the structural walls are expressed in the spaces below. Concrete coming down to get lateral support. And in the auditorium space, we said, let's use that in a new way. And we, we invented this crinkle concrete form with the acoustic engineer where there's a depth in these crinkle shapes and it becomes acoustic. So we don't have to line the concrete walls with acoustic tile or wood treat or anything like that. It's the natural concrete, but with a crinkle form, a formwork. And, and I still have the models here in my office. We did all these tests and the acoustic engineer analyzed it and said, that's going to work. But it has to do with the angles and the depth. It's very deep. So then we lit the auditorium by shining light on these crinkle forms. And when you go into that auditorium, you've never been in a space like that. It's magical, you know? And I chose the, the sort of orange mohair for the seats. And then you get this beautiful crinkle white concrete on the walls that's lit from above and below. And then this orange mohair seats. That's a very special space. The structure was a key element of design for Stephen. Stephen and his team utilized a number of techniques to work with the structure and supplement material selections. So there's terrazzo and terrazzo ground concrete. You know, terrazzo is also a Roman material, very old, 2,000 years. And it's marble and a matrix. But where the main public spaces are in the entrance is real terrazzo. But in some spaces, we just terrazzo grind concrete. For a tenth the cost, you can take regular concrete and run a terrazzo grinder over the top of it and expose the aggregate. It's beautiful in its own way. And another, let's say, very durable is end grain blocks of wood. So you will see this end grain cherry wood and ebonized ash wood. But that's also because it's end grain. It's forever. You know, it's very, it's, that started out as an industrial flooring for factories, end grain blocks of wood. You know, so we've, we've used that. And then we've used American cherry for the oversized acoustical doors. There's a smooth acoustical plaster in some rooms. You know, you have to be careful about the acoustics. These are dance rehearsal spaces. Music becomes, you know, kind of central to the rehearsal. So you, know, you need a reverberation time just under two seconds. I mean, we use that crinkled concrete in some of the rehearsal rooms as well. But every room has to have natural light, natural ventilation, but good acoustic properties as well. As we discussed, a major component of the design was the proposal to embed much of the expansion under a public landscape. This move offered maximum green space to the community and provided landscape views from the interior spaces. Landscape is not something you do afterwards. 
you conceive landscape with the architecture from the beginning. Because I worked as a landscape architect, this landscape was designed in the competition. It has 35 ginkgo trees. The 35th president of Kennedy. And the interesting thing about ginkgo trees is around the 22nd of November, their golden yellow leaves fall off all at once. And it's so beautiful. But that was the day that Kennedy was assassinated. And there's a mahogany deck in a pool. You know, he had the famous boat PT-109. And PT-109 was made out of mahogany. Back in the World War II days, some of those boats, they made them out of two and a half, three inch thick mahogany planks. So there's these relationships to Kennedy in the landscape. So I was very happy that Michael Hollander, my landscape architect, collaborator, and friend, followed the competition design. So therefore the landscape has certain meanings in relationship to Kennedy. The REACH had ambitious sustainability targets. Arup, the engineers on the project, collaborated closely to develop a holistic building system strategy to optimize energy performance while remaining largely unseen. The team opted for a geothermal heating and cooling system. There's 27 geothermal wells heating and cooling our project, but I think it's the future and I think it's underutilized right now. People, they talk about wind and solar, of course, solar energy, of course, wind energy. But geothermal, when you do the geothermal, you put the pipes in the floor, the, the radiant in the floor, and the floor acts as a flywheel for the whole building, retaining the heat. So this system is never turned on or off. It just runs all the time. It's a water furnace. You know, there's no fossil fuels. And there's no moving parts. It's just taking the temperature. It's a closed loop. Now I can extract heat from that. And then I can extract cool from that. So once you've put the wells in, it's forever. So I really am an advocate in terms of energy and the future of geothermal heating and cooling for everything. Especially in the northern half of America, where we have the cycle between cold and hot. So. I think that's really, for me, that's a very important unseen dimension of a project like the Kennedy Center, is the 27 geothermal wells that heat and cool the whole thing. Opened in September 2019, this iconic new addition positions the Kennedy Center as a 21st century, future-oriented arts institution and celebrates President Kennedy and his significant contribution to the arts and American culture. Before we close out this episode, I always try to gain some additional insight from our guests about the greater industry. With Stephen's storied career, I was curious what he saw as the biggest challenge facing the AEC industry today. I think the problem in America is the litigious society that we work in. You know, it's a real problem. I've never been sued anywhere else on the planet only in America. And it seems like every project, there's some dispute, you know, and the lawyers just fan the flames. You know, in America, for every architect, for every one architect, there are 11 lawyers. Can you believe it? Yeah, no, I can believe it. It's ridiculous. It's ridiculous. So 
I prefer to work in Europe or in China or Asia or Japan. Japan is wonderful. Wow. It's a beautiful place to be an architect. But it's, it's hard to be an architect in the USA. It is because of these, these people that are just, uh, you know, driving everybody. Also, to be a doctor. I have a, one client who was a doctor, uh, Dr. Martin Kamins. He finally quit. He said, I'm retiring. I can't stand this, all this legal battles, you know, malpractice lawsuit against doctors are killing the medical profession. So if you want to change something, not on the planet, I think, you know, overall architecture is pretty healthy, but the difficulty in the US of A has to do with the, the problem of 11 lawyers for every architect. That's a really sad story. Another challenge that I see is time. The reach took time, extensive thought, and ingenious design and construction solutions to bring it to life. Yet, over the course of my career, I've seen an increasing focus to give less time for design. Stephen had great insight on the subject. It's negatively affecting our cities. You know, I mean, right down the street here, there's a, a line of glass skyscrapers that are really not very good. You know, I'm across the street from Hudson Yards. I'm not saying that every one of them is bad, but I spoke with the CEO of one of these companies and he said, you know, we do one of those in two weeks, the whole design. And, and he said, we make a lot of money. You know, I mean, it's, uh, let's say it's the commercial real estate industrial complex and that's affecting our cities. I think there are some great buildings in New York City, but they weren't, they weren't designed in a, a week or whatever, you know what I mean? One time I had an apartment in London Terrace. It's a beautiful, very large apartment brick with courtyards and incredible, you know, geometry in 1926. But I'm sure that took time to, to draw and design. You know, I mean, it's architecture takes time. Oliver Alto also said one thing that architecture takes more than any other field is a lot of time. If you can have an idea that drives the design, you could do that. But then you've got to work out all the pragmatics, the function, the, the structure, the acoustic, all these things. And then you get great architecture, but you can't just, you know, it doesn't happen quickly. I know the first time I ever left the United States years ago, the first time I ever went anywhere was to Italy. And as a young woman, not particularly well-versed in architecture, but I remember just how impacted I was everywhere I went. Everywhere I went, everything I looked at was interesting, and it was emotional, and it was this experience, and it was so different from what I saw, you know, on a day-to-day -day basis in the United States. And that's always kind of bothered me, because where do we spend most of our time? In these buildings. Sure, absolutely. And that was the first time I realized how a building could emotionally affect me. You know, I lived in Rome behind the Pantheon. Oh, really? One of the greatest spaces in Roman that have survived completely intact. I had a deal with the guard, and I would go in before the people got there. This was 1970, by the way. Now it's a line around the block. You know, it's totally different. But in 1970, he would let me in to check out the light that day. It always was different. Every day was different. And I remember days when it was raining, little drops come down the oculus and go through the cuts in the marble floor. The Romans were amazing architects. And Rome also is full of amazing, you know, Borromini, the churches of Borromini. 
Piazza Navona. I mean, it's, it's full of enormously inspiring spaces. And I think as a young 21-year-old, probably that experience of living there every day, going to see different works of architecture, changed my life for sure. I mean, when I came back to Seattle, Washington, I mean, I just, I thought there's nothing here. You know, I mean, the Space Needle, that was nice. I went there when I was a child in 1962. My mother took my brother and I to the top of the Space Needle. It's still there. You know, the World's Fair in Seattle, that had a big impression on me too, because that was about the future. That architecture can be an optimistic emblem of the future. And I still believe that. So the combination of growing up in Seattle with World's Fair of 1962, it was called Forward Thrust. Combine that with Rome, and that's how I began. I mean, I, that, that's, you know, the sort of depth of, of Rome and the enormous inspiration of the spaces and light of Roman architecture, but you combine it with Forward Thrust, and that's kind of where I, I think I, where I started. I really enjoyed my conversation with Stephen. I hope this episode sparks a new idea, helps you solve a problem that you've been working through, or inspires the mark that you want to leave on this world on your path to world domination. I love architecture, and I think architecture has the potential, more than any other field, really, to make that public contribution. And I'm very proud of several projects that we've done. The Lewis Center at Princeton, which forms a big public space and public buildings. But I think the Kennedy Center is one of the most important ones in that way. So, yeah, I mean, if I had to start over again, and I would definitely be an architect. I think it's, it's one of the difficult fields for sure. It's not easy. But the fulfillment of making that kind of contribution of a public space that everyone can enjoy for a hundred year, hundreds of years. That's can't be beat. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode and want to learn more, visit rcat.com forward slash podcast to see photos, details, and more related project and product information that we discussed today. While you're there, take a look around rcat.com. For over 30 years, RCAT has been the resource for AEC professionals to find the right products for their project. Try RCAT and see how their tools can save you time and money and help you get ahead on your next project. Visit RCAT.com. That's A-R-C-A-T dot If you enjoyed the show, you can support us by subscribing, leaving a five-star rating and review on Apple Podcasts, and sharing this with your friends. Thanks again for listening. We'll be back to share more stories and lessons learned to help you navigate your next project.